Today, you've clicked on Behind the Buzz, a public fits bi-weekly podcast scrutinizing the myriad details that made up the production of some of our most popular past shows. I'm Joe Kukin, producing director here at APF, joined by artistic director Anne-Marie Perez. Hi there. And together, we'll be telling stories about the work that went into bringing these plays to life. This is episode three. And today, we're continuing the conversation about Margaret Edson's Wit, the opening show of our 2017-2018 season. And today is all about design. Uh, We'll be joined by APF's resident set designer, Eric Koger, and lighting designer, Elizabeth Klein, both of whom have been with APF for years and years and years. And and we love them so. we love them (laughs) on a magnitude that cannot be described uh, adequately. Uh, So let's jump right in. Let me introduce these two first. Eric A. Koger. What's the A stand for, Eric? Alan. Alan. Eric Alan Koger. Eric Koger has designed scenery and lighting uh, all over the country and serves as resident scenic designer for a public fit. Probably his, his proudest achievement, I would think. Uh, <laughs> he's designed almost every APF set uh, since a summons from the Tinker back in 2015. The list includes August Osage County, The Elephant Man, Small Mouse Sounds, Other Desert. Remember that giant set for Other Desert Cities? Yes, Mammoth. The, the glass, that was very expensive. The Glass <laughs> Menagerie, The Realistic Joneses, Beauty Queen of Linan, When the Rain Stops Falling, and of course, Wit. Eric also serves as department chair of communication studies and theater at Midwestern State University in Denton, Texas. And he flies out to paint our sets and to, and to work with us uh, every time. And we're, we're so grateful. He just comes out to have lunch with me. Elizabeth Klein is a Las Vegas based lighting designer, originally from the DC metropolitan area. She received her BFA in theater design and technology from the Pennsylvania state university and her MFA in theater design from right here at UNLV. Uh, she landed in the Valley in 2012 and has been designing shows here in Vegas ever since. You've seen her work uh, on APS stage in our productions of Beauty Queen of Linan, Elephant Man, uh, A Steady Rain, and, of course, Wit. Now, you guys, I don't want this to turn into really a, um, a seminar on design, but I think we should talk a little bit about just this, the beginning processes of design. So, Eric, what's the first thing uh, you look at? When you're you've been assigned a script to design and you read that script for the very first time, what's the what's the sort of first thing you do? I always uh, start with visual imagery and try to figure out what it is that I'm actually seeing. Um, Something that's uh, startling and different than what everyone else does. I definitely don't want anything boring. So once I get that figured out, then that's when I actually go to the director and just spitball it. Here's some ideas. What do you is, it fair, is it fair to say, and, and Liz, you can chime in on this too, as a, as a line designer, is it fair to say that the, the sort of uh, the design process revolves around the set initially? We have to sort of figure out what the set is before we can bring all the elements together. And I'm including costumes and sound and, and other design elements as well. Is that fair? I think once you're ready to ground your show in the reality of whatever you're doing, that's true. But I don't necessarily, as a lighting designer, need to wait for a set before I can start conceptualizing. Because so I also start with visuals like Eric does. Yeah, so that's the first thing you do when you when you start reading a script that you're and, meant to design. And, and if I can say, I think before even the designers, I think the designers read the text, but it's up to the directors to also provide either a theme or a visual or a one word concept or something so that the designers can kind of hang their hat on. And, and then from there, we all 
uh, find visuals. And then we all come together and kind of share those mm -hmm. so that we can come up with a universal world uh, in order um, to create a really exciting, unique production that's not derivative of other productions. Well, and I should say that at, at APF, this process actually starts eight to 10 weeks before the very first rehearsal. We spend a lot of time talking and meetings and discussing those images and concepts and before we even begin to to uh make it manifest is that fair yeah i'd say i think uh not all directors <clears throat> excuse me not all directors go through the same process that Anne marie described that is my preferred way of starting a show to have a director who's sort of the hinge point and gives, even if it's just a single word that encapsulates how they feel about the show that they've either picked or been assigned by someone, um, that is very helpful for me as a lighting designer when I'm starting so that I have a foundation or something that I'm working towards that is someone else's vision, but it doesn't always happen that way. You two are uh, exceptional at guiding us from the beginning in that way, which is very helpful for me. I appreciate it a lot because then I don't feel like I'm floundering and making up my own thing that ultimately just has to get shoved into somebody else's box. No, that's just because we have control issues. Um, <laughs> so Eric, you, so you mentioned, you mentioned images and, and uh, words. Can you think back now? I know that wit has been a few years ago for all of us. Um, Emery and I have been talking about it now sort of nonstop for the past, you know, four weeks as we put this podcast together. Can you remember some of those, those images and words that were thrown out very early in this process? Uh, sterile was a, a really major word for me. Um, making sure that we represent the, uh, uh, sterility of a hospital as well as, um, I was really, and as we'll talk about here in a moment, I'm sure the, the whole idea of a ceiling of a hospital, all of the various ceilings that you would actually see if you were laying in a hospital bed and just staring at the ceiling all day. Well, that was, that was interesting because you had to, you and Liz actually really cooperated because we did have in, in, in wit a false ceiling that was made up of, as I recall, just a myriad of fluorescent lights and practical, uh, lighting and some, some luminescence down. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you two discuss what was going to be used in that false ceiling? And, and, and Liz, did you have an idea of, uh, of how those lights would actually practically enhance the, the scene? I should say too, that wit, wit is set in a hospital, but there's also a number of flashbacks. So you probably mm -hmm. use the lighting to enhance that notion. Uh, yeah, I think, I think I imagine Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that Eric's notion of the different sort of fragmented ceiling elements came first. And I know that, I am always interested in the idea of using color temperature as opposed to uh, hue and saturation in my shows whenever I have an opportunity to play with white light and okay. the differences dumb, of what? Dumb guy alert, dumb guy alert. Can you, can you, can, can you uh, <laughs> define color saturation and the, those big words you just used? Uh, yeah, so, so sure. Hue, hue and saturation, I'm just looking at in terms of like red, light, blue, light, green, light, right? Like the colored light that you're used to seeing when you go into any dramatic experience where the lighting designer has the opportunity, especially with like LEDs to at the drop of a hat, change the entire color of what you're looking at. When you use white light in that same way, it's uh, significantly more subtle, but there's still a um, mood shift that can happen when you go from something that feels like warmth candlelight, for example, if you look at that warm, ambery white 
and you compare that against what we looked at in terms of the sterility of a cold, harsh hospital white light, uh, that was a driving force for me with this show is being able to use shades of white to tell the story and enhance the mood and change the mood and reflect back to the audience, the moods that were happening on the stage. So Eric giving me different pieces of ceiling to be able to embed the sort of realities of different hospital lighting elements into the set was the ultimate opportunity to be able to incorporate non-theatrical lights in a way that changes the theatrical experience. And Eric, wasn't there a some serendipity in that ceiling? Didn't you have, I, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm violating HIPAA rules at this point, but did you have a, a hospital experience right around this time that, that sort of helped prophecy the, the ceiling? Am I, am I misremembering? Yeah, no, it was actually a little bit earlier, but yeah, I was, I was, uh, actually in the hospital for a little bit. So yeah, I definitely know what a hospital ceiling looks like. Mm-hmm. Was that by inspiration? <laughs> I wouldn't say inspiration. I would say desperation. <laughs> but you, you ended up laying there looking at the ceiling for a long time and, uh, marveled at the, just the, the, the wonderful it, it looks. And so yeah. I wanted to replicate and and to go along with what Liz was saying, though, uh, and the nuance of white, uh, I actually only used five colors in the entirety of the set. The floor was uh, that weird sterile green, blue green that they usually have in lots of hospitals. And then I had four shades of white and that was it. So a warm white kind of on a tanner side and then it went all the way to a cool white. So, yeah, I, can you, can you nuanced describe- it. Can you just, aside from the color, um, just to remind everyone, uh, those who have seen, who, who saw the production and maybe some who hadn't as well, can you describe the set in, in, uh, in some detail? Remind us what it looked like. Yeah, it was, a, it was sort of a thrust set because we had an audience on two sides and it was looking at a square essentially. And uh, there were columns at each of the corners of the square and there were two walls that kind of flanked the upstage areas of the of the space. And then as the show progressed, uh, we started seeing opportunity for those walls to shift, which was kind of uh, way outside of the realm of, of what this type of show would normally feel. And I thought that was kind of progressive of us to make a move like that. What I really liked about actually the moving walls is that when you came into the into the house as an audience member, it looked like a very, very simple set with two two walls, you know, um, flanked together in an L shape. But as the story progressed, right, uh, there was this surprise feeling of those walls moving in and out, depending on basically uh, Vivian Baring's um emotional state if she felt expansive and she felt like she was in a like a teaching situation where she felt very comfortable those those walls would move out but if she felt very claustrophobic those walls would move in as she progressed into her illness and um joe and i had great fun finding out when those moments happen because at the beginning of the rehearsal process you don't really quite know how you're going to use all of these set pieces you have to really experiment with that during the rehearsal process but that was one of three elements that that i just enjoyed most uh of your design well there was another surprise in that too and and eric you can talk about this yeah. a little bit there's another surprise when those walls moved 
they revealed something on the floor as I remember. Yes. Uh, and that was, that was a found thing that we did kind of, that was one of the last elements that we came up with. Uh, and when the walls moved back, what was left? And we determined that maybe it was, uh, you know, a defined space, the floor of the hospital space. But then beyond that, what do we have? Do we fade out? Do we grade to black? Do we just chop off to black? Well, we determined that we would leave it very, very defined, an absolute square. And then outside of that would be black. But then once the walls moved, then you would see a script that was written uh, in the hand of Dunn, right? So it was actually poetry. And we had found we'd found an old manuscript that uh, was in his hand that you recreated in, I think, a, a sort of a light blue or was it an yeah. airy blue? Yeah, that was my second favorite element of the show. It, it was subtle, but I, I loved it. I looked forward to, to seeing that text every night. And I think we used that text, revealing that text, especially at the very end when Vivian Baring transit transitions from life to death when she stands up on the bed and it's clear that she's actually died and then the walls expand and then we reveal the text of Dunn on the floor. Well, not just the text of Dunn on the floor, I think, Liz, didn't we use projections of that text on the white walls? Yeah, exactly. That's, I think, the only time. Hmm. I think that's the only time that we used the text projected on the walls. It's the only, time we, used, it's the only time we used the text. We actually used, we used script uh, on the walls during her lecture sequence. She, she right. talks about, she gives the lecture about uh, if poisonous minerals and if that tree. And we also used a script in the pre-show. We would have different quotes from Don yeah. that, were, that were put up there just to, just kind of to tickle the audience's imagination. Yeah. Throughout the pre-show we, we, yeah. we did use, use projections on there. You know, that's a good question though, Liz. Does, does, when a designer is told by a, a couple of rowdy directors that they're planning on using projections, does that change the way you have to now think about lighting if, if projections are suddenly involved? Uh, only in terms of logistics, really. And more more than anything, my favorite go-to phrase is something to the effect of, I'm totally cool if you do that, but it's not on me. I am not the projections girl. Please don't try to ask me to figure that out because I don't know. It's so above my pay grade. <laughs> but yeah. I am the lighting designer, but I'm happy to coordinate with a projections designer or a pair of Goonie directors who want to take on projections for themselves. I'm totally on board to facilitate that, but I sure can't make it happen. Is that really, is that really a different, that's a different uh, designation than you would have a, a lighting designer and a projections designer. It doesn't fall within your purview. Yeah, oh, Absolutely. Did you, so we have these, these two blank walls. They seemed like projection screens. It seemed like a pretty good opportunity to throw projections up there, but they were really white. In fact, that whole set, as I recall, was really bright. There was, there was a lot of white on the walls. As Eric said, there are different shades of white. The floor was a pale blue. I think that would afford a lot of reflection. Is that a, is that a challenge, Liz, for line designer when you're just faced with a, just this huge amount of white? It can be, but in this instance, we tried to use it to our advantage and incorporate that idea into how we approach the design from the beginning, uh, because the intention with using these real life light bulbs in the ceiling in like recessed can fixtures that we bought from Home Depot, the intention was to be able to light this in a way when we're in the hospital that looked like we were in the hospital. So using that reflection is something that you would experience in a closed hospital room where you're just getting that light that's bouncing around the room. You only have your 
three recessed can fixtures in the ceiling and a table lamp or whatever. There's not a lot of light. You're not in a theatrical environment in a hospital room. So it makes sense to try and utilize the reality of the reflections of your bare, dark white walls to get some of that light. So we tried to rely less heavily on the theatrical lighting fixtures and only use those to sort of fill in the mysteries of shadows just that the space begets us because it's so large and expansive in and of itself. That was a issue for me because I was like, wow, that it, that doesn't, I'm really attracted to very dramatic lighting in, in shows. And so there was a lot of limitation <laughs> with that in this show. But I think you had a, a beautiful gobo that you had put up and we would use that in the transitions. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't all just like, hey, hospital, hospital, hospital. We did insert a couple of theatrical uh, moments and use different color. What's a gobo? Yeah, that is like okay. Yeah, let's go back to Parchment Lighting 101, right? So it stands for Goes Before Optics, but it's uh, usually a metal device that breaks up the beam of light. So you're giving your what otherwise would just be a conical shaped beam of light some kind of other shape you're altering it. So for us, we probably, I don't remember specifically, maybe Anne Marie, you do, but I imagine in my own general design aesthetic that it was a miscellaneous breakup just so that there were pockets of light and dark scattered across the stage, because that's how I like to treat uh, transitions, especially when they're dancey transitions or things on wheel that we are intended to see through the transition process. I like to watch going through the light and darkness and seeing the difference between where there is light and where there is not light. Yes. It was very Jackson Pollock. That's what we- <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's really, that's really what Gobo stands for. I, I, I am today years old when I learned that yep. that's what Gobo stands for. Yep, because that is physically where in the fixture it will go. It goes before the optics of the fixture so that it then becomes integrated with the optics of the fixture and the way that they react together in the body of your light source. God, my college time was just wasted. I didn't even know. <laughs> I mean, your college time was like 185 years ago. So it's fair that. that you would forget that. Thank you. Thank, thanks for that. Thank you. <laughs> so well, you, you've talked about, we talked a little bit about transitions and, and Eric specifically for you. Now this play takes place in the present. She's in a hospital, but there are also a number of flashbacks. There's a classroom setting. There's a, a couple of offices that she, she vi- has to visit during the course of the play. Now we've worked with designers in the past who are seem incapable of sort of abstract thought. And and there are some designers who would look at this and say, well, we need to draw, bring in a wagon now to put the office in. And now we need to bring in another wagon with a classroom setting on there. But that was not an option for this, for this set. Um, what are some of the challenges in creating multiple locations on a unit set? Well, I, I mean, as it relates specifically to this show, um, we had a lot of just small pieces and the pieces were, you know, chairs or, stools or whatever and they were they were on wheels and so we just rolled them in and out and then of course there's a choreography that you guys do magically on stage so it's always a a beautiful thing to behold that was part of the fun of putting everything on wheels and just like literally wheeling some cast members around from yeah and and it add to the 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 i don't know the uh frenetic quality of some of those moments like the cold blue scene. Yeah. It was uh, so interesting. We, we moved into it so quickly and then right out, you know, 
Yeah, they were there and then gone. It, and with their detritus sort of left behind. That's what yeah. I'm actually most proud of in the show is the simplicity of the set and and all of those pieces on wheels. And and Joe and I, I have to say, I think we spent more time figuring out the choreography with those chairs and that hospital bed and the hospital um, medical uh pieces that were donated to us. Um, it, it, it literally took us three weeks just to figure out all that choreography, uh, with those set pieces that you had provided before we even started working with, with Tina, who played Vivian Baring. Well, we had the, yeah, we, we called, there was a moment where Vivian Baring goes through a, an intense, uh, bit of nausea. And we, we call this the vomit rocket sequence because a, we didn't want to actually, um, just have her sit on stage vomiting into a basin. We thought that, that to really express that feeling that of, of nausea, in the way that sort of your world crumbles around you, we would use this idea of everything being on wheels. So I don't know who, before we found this amazing uh, hospital bed that she laid in, it's really a gurney, I guess. And it had wheels and we'd spun it around and passed it from cast member to cast member. So she really was on a, on a ride there. And it, it just coincidentally really really sort of slipped in the entire concept of, of the hospital space moving and changing and being sort of like clockwork. Also, I think of a hospital where there's a lot of hustle and bustle, right? Absolutely. People moving around, but a lot of times that, um, in, in this particular play that would happen outside of Vivian Baring's room. But we tried to create that on stage to kind of set up the entirety of the hospital much like you did with all of those lighting fixtures so that we would have a lot more dynamic staging on, um, uh, for the audience to engage with. Well, and speaking of those lighting fixtures, Liz, do you remember, do you recall how many separate, um, specific lighting fixtures were in that false ceiling? I, I, it was a number. Yeah, it was, it was a number. Um, Eric, maybe you can clarify in my mind. I think that there were seven different ceiling aspects and I, maybe I'm giving us too many. There might have been less than that. But yeah. I remember I think there were six. Yeah. Okay. Right around. I remember there. having uh, like an L shaped corner that we utilized as sort of a hallway. And so within that corner area, there were probably eight, eight lighting fixtures that were all the same sort of recessed can lights going down the hallway. Then we had an area that was um, sort of fluorescent, paneling and we cheated our way into fluorescence with led tape so we used lines of led tape in those fake fluorescent um covers we bought the real covers and just put led tape underneath them to look like it was two tubes of fluorescence we had several of those why didn't you just use fluorescence uh for logistics convenience the environment any number of reasons really uh, yeah. LED tape is really easy to just solder into place. If, well, it's really easy for people who know, who know how to do it. So this is the first show that we brought my partner in on, the first of many. So now anytime I use LED tape, she's the one that I come crying to. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is the first of many, many times where I've made her solder copious abundance of LED tape. Uh, so we had those fake fluorescent panels that were sort of, we had do two different control aspects of those, I think, to divide two different spaces as well. And then we had dome lights. Eric, do you remember we had one dome light that was, I think, in Vivian's hospital room that was like sort of a decorative ceiling fixture? Yeah, it was a little more uh, homey. So because we didn't have a lot of, of set elements, just pieces and, and chairs and whatever, you would use these separate areas of the ceiling, different lights in the ceiling to help differentiate locations. Is that what I'm hearing? 
Yeah, exactly. So we used the ceiling elements and then the lights within those ceiling elements to define which area of space we were in, whether we were in the hall, hallway hospital proper or in her room specifically. Um, I think in the nausea, the vomit rocket scene, um, that's we maybe used several of these elements in uh, conjunction with one another, just sort of flickering. I know this is another aspect where we use that gobo, and I know that we used uh, sort of shades of green to thrust us into the theatricality of the moment that we were creating. So using all these different sort of movement aspects, watching the visible movement of lighting on stage, I think we tried to push the audience into that feeling of nausea. Eric, can we talk a little bit about the challenge of working at the usual place, specifically those poles in the space? <laughs> well, and I, I just want to say before we jump into this subject, this yeah. is a great subject for Liz, too. You yes. had some challenges with this. This is a great, a, a, a great subject. But I want to say, you know, what we have now at the usual place um, is far, far and away removed from what we had during WID. We are sort of still in a, in a construction phase, a very rough concrete floor, no epoxy on it, dust falling from the ceiling. Um, it, it was still a really rough warehouse space, right, Eric? Oh, yeah, 100%. The biggest challenge that I have always had in that space until they finished it was the uh, amount of dust. I mean, I couldn't hardly paint that floor, and I was trying to paint that floor all the time. And so that was, you know, there was always so much dust. And uh, even if I, I had it cleaned up in the area that I was painting, got it painted, got it sealed in, uh, three days of people walking from the outside of that space through the dusty parts onto the stage, oh man, it just wrecked my floors. I had to put so much, so much work into making sure that they were able to be cleaned. Can you talk a little bit about the poles? Oh, yeah, the poles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm going to hear about the, the poles. They're still there. Yeah, I actually, uh, for this particular show, I like the poles. I thought the polls were fantastic. It was one of the shows that I think they worked the best for. So let me just clarify. So in most theaters, right, uh, uh, there's like an open space if it's a black box, right? But in the middle of this warehouse, in order to the, the structure intact, in, in there are these giant poles that are placed um, systematically throughout our acting space. 20 so, feet in every direction. <laughs> yes. So you and your genius, you always, what I love is you always take these poles and you incorporate them in your design. C carry on. So yes, this one, I actually uh, determined that we were going to encase them so that they were, instead of being a round pole, they were square. Uh, and it just kind of helped, you know, take away that, that, uh, soft quality that, uh, you know, an actual pillar would actually provide and, you know, made it more of a harsh space like you would have in a hospital. So, so that brings me back to my third, uh, favorite element in your design was in, in the story itself, um, Vivian has to have all these different medical tests. Right. Where she has to get an X-ray and an MRI. And, and, you know, that's very expensive machinery. And that's not something, of course, that we can afford. And even to like replicate something like that on stage where it would look realistic would be very expensive and very and not plausible. <laughs> so, but what we did with your your polls is in a very theatrical representative 
way, we would twist those poles and we would use that as an idea to represent each um, each uh, test or machinery that you would enter enter well, the, into. The, yeah, the poles twisted 180 degrees, and there was a reveal on the other side, right? So they were they were squared squared off, but they twisted 180 degrees, and the side that was uh, revealed, Liz, I think you had something to do with. There were strip lights or something to recreate some flashing giga or gizmo. <laughs> Yeah, we use more of that LED tape in there, man. So that is one of the weird places that we put LED tape in the show. And then it was uh, programmed just to have some like color and flicker effects as the buttons were being pushed. And we're sort of doing the like beep boop, beep boop, button pushing sounds. There were uh, reactive lights in the pole. That was fun. I, I, I it, it was, and they, and it wasn't, it wasn't automatic. I mean, there was an actor on stage who, who spun those poles around as if they were um, working the machine, but I thought it was a very effective moment in the show. Well, yeah. And it also took us a little bit of time just directorially with the actors, you know, we had to explore how that was going to work and what seemed sensible and reasonable to all of us creatively. But um, it was something that you guys provided for us. Uh, and I felt like we, we did a good job in, in terms of storytelling. You know, that you were, talking about the Eric you're talking about the 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 challenges of that warehouse space but you were the only one who who faced challenges Liz as I recall on opening night I mean there 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 are so we we are the we are the bottom floor of this warehouse space but there is a there is a, an office space above us but at that time during it wasn't office space it was a more empty warehouse and there were a number of holes in the floor there were just circular literal holes where you could stand up above and look through and see the stage beyond. And if I recall opening night, one of, those, one of those holes had a, causes some trouble. Do you remember that Liz? Yeah. <laughs> of all the shows, the one where we put all these practical lighting fixtures in the ceiling is the one that has buckets of water pouring down from above on opening night before the house opens. Now I am across the country at a wedding for one of my best friends. Uh, so yes, that was that was probably one of the most stressful opening night experiences that I didn't even get to be a part of. I think Brandy, our stage manager, called me to say, I know you're not really in a place to be able to help us, but what do we do about this? And so I had to hook her up with my assistant for this show, Eric Hofschild, who was in town, thankfully, and had to scurry his little butt over to the space uh, to work diligently with Brandy and probably whomever else was in the space. I'm sure the two of you were there. Um, oh, yes. to oh, we were there. park and things out. I think that show, the opening night show opened at a less than ideal capacity for lighting because we had to turn off all of these really important integral ceiling fixtures so that we didn't cause sparks and set the building on fire or blow out our entire electrical capacity in that oh. building. How did that water get there, Emery? Do you remember? Oh, yes. Okay. So Dave, Sharon, our lovely benefactor and, and owner of the building, he decided that he was like, oh, well, we need more bathrooms and the bathrooms are not quite clean enough. So he was going to clean the bathrooms upstairs for the patrons. So he grabbed this big bucket of water and he was mopping and then the bucket of water spilled and it went through the mouse hole. Well, he, did, he turned the bucket, didn't just spill, it fell over. Yeah, it fell and over. And the entire bucket went down this hole. 
hole. <laughs> yes. And spilled into that mouse hole and went right on top of your lighting fixtures and landed on the bed. And so then, you know, Brandy and Joe and I were running back and forth between our house and the theater, drying the sheets. Uh, Eric is is trying to decide, Eric and Shannon, uh, the technical director, are trying to decide which lights that we should unpark. We also had to re uh, Eric, your assistant, he also had to reprogram uh, poisonous minerals uh, and redesign uh, certain sections of the show, um, you know, just minutes before we were about to open the door so that there would be enough light on stage for certain scenes in in the actual show. So, uh, yes, it was a very stressful night. And I think I downed two glasses of wine in, in a very short amount of time. <laughs> and that, that speaks to where that speaks to where the space was. But, Eric, you well, both of you have just been in there recently. We just uh, the last show that a public fit closed, opened and closed. We actually had a full run right before the pandemic. It was a steady rain at the usual place with the um, um, with the rebuild sort of almost complete. Was there, was there a different feeling in this last show with with the the, the rebuild? One hundred percent. Yeah, it was, I've liked I've actually liked the space now, too, but it's actually more challenging now than it was. I don't know. It just seems like it's um, there's less. It's more finite. Yeah, that's what I would I would agree. There's less places for us to put lights because there's sort of more space has to be occupied. More uh, proportionate space has to be occupied by audience and also playing area. So then there's less places for us to like hide lights at weird angles or embed lights in the ceiling. There's a like an air wall or a partition wall or something. Uh, cutting the space essentially in a third, I think there's a third of the space removed for the bar area now where previously we would be able to like hide a bunch of lights back there and make a really long throw at whatever our playing space is. Now that's totally gone. So there's a lot. Uh, it is more challenging now for sure. Uh, Eric, do you find that to be true, Eric? Is it, is it less, is it more limited now with the, with the it build out? It's definitely more limited, but you know, it's going to be a, it's just a different type of space. What we had before uh, is less commercial. And what we have now is a little more finished and obviously by default, more commercial. It's cleaner. It'll be quicker to install a small set, but there's going to be some of those things that we were doing early on that we just can't do in that space now. But what we were doing early on in that big warehouse space, nobody can do anywhere unless they have a big warehouse space. Eric is absolutely right when he says that the commercial feel and the cleanliness of it and sort of the appeal of it uh, certainly has improved tremendously. And uh, when we're finished with a show, the alcohol uh, right on the other side of that wall. That's a plus side. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eric, you're never, Eric is never here for that because you come in uh, – the uh, two weeks before the show opens and you sort of put everything together and, and you paint uh, is there. And I say you paint with the, with the idea that it's not, you just painting a wall. You do some very, very um, in, intense and intricate um, detail work. Can you talk a little bit about, about that and your skills as a set painter and how that, how that differs from being say a house painter or a, or a, you know, a, a portrait painter. Right. Well, to begin with, uh, you know, being a scenic designer, that's going to be one of the things that uh, assists the scenic design is, is the paint and uh, being able to figure out what those faux treatments are and what have you. Um, 
and it always ends up that I'm, I'm never scared to, you know, decide to paint an entire floor to look like tile that are two by four inches. I'm not scared to do that, but it takes hundreds of hours to do that. But I only have like 60. So I don't end up sleeping a lot, but I produce something interesting, you know, and, and it's about the amount of detail that you put into it. Like we had lots and lots of uh, texture on the floor for uh, uh, wit. And it just, it took a while to actually lay in as much texture as I had, because it was a very, very uh, subtle uh, blue, green, uh, some grays, some whites, uh, and it had to be very, very even. There couldn't be any amount of uh, splotchiness because it had to be, uh, it had to look like that kind of tile, you know? And so hospital it had to be very, very hospital <laughs> tile, very, yeah. very, very even. And uh, that takes some time. And then, like I said before, it's that process of making sure that everything is capable of being washed. When you do a floor like that, you have to be able to clean it because scuffing occurs. And I've learned over the years now working in that space, how important huh? that that has become in my world. So I have different processes for ensuring the, the best product in that regard. Well, the cleaning is one thing, but it's the look that's always fascinated me because I think there's a there's a real challenge. I mean, how do you how do you meet the challenge of knowing that an audience has to come in and immediately look at this floor and say, "Oh, that's a hospital room. That's a hospital floor." I see it immediately when there are you know myriad hospital rooms around the the country, just a huge variety of different types of looks and floors and and whatever. What is it that what do you draw on to make sure that an audience their immediate reaction is, "Oh, this is a hospital. I'm in a hospital right, right. now." Uh, that's, that's what I was saying about the sterility at the very beginning of the podcast. Uh, you know, the sterility of this particular space was definitely coming back to those whites that I referenced before. And then of course the floor itself was the main color for the entirety of the environment. And, you know, it's, it's very, it's more of a mood than anything else. Uh, cause it was blue green, so any amount of white light that is bouncing off of it is going to bounce uh, a, a green light out of the floor, you know, and you don't even necessarily notice it, but it's a feel. Now, as far as me actually painting it, you know, it's just a, a fairly simple techniques as far as, you know, spatters and um, making sure to put washes over and and then eventually, like I was saying, Clear coat, clear coat, clear coat for days and days and days. That's where I spend most of my money on the clear coat. I, I, you know, I'm just going to call you out a little bit. Um, Eric, I know that you are uh, a set designer, but you're also a lighting designer. Uh, and, but of all the things that you do for APF, I feel like you, you take the most care or ha find the most joy in, in, in painting. Am I wrong? Oh, I love I love to paint. Yeah, 100 percent. And some shows are more fun than others. And, uh, you know, wit was fairly simple, to be honest. The floor was the biggest, hugest pain in the neck. But again, it wasn't as bad as many others that I've painted there. Elephant Man. Elephant Man was treacherous. <laughs> would, you have, would you have approached wit, uh, the floor of wit differently if um, the, the directors hadn't suggested that all of the... Uh, 
um, scenic pieces and elements would be on wheels rolling around back and forth. There'd be a lot of, of uh, casters and, and, and wheels across the, the set. Would you have done anything differently? Um, for instance, uh, no, no, I wouldn't. I, I actually, the only thing that I could have possibly considered doing differently was putting a, uh, a different color tile border. That would be the only thing that would be different. But I think that the, the cleanliness of the space was essential. And I liked it just exactly the way it was. We, we did have a little bit of a border of black around it, but other than that, it was just very, very sterile. And that was, that was exactly what I wanted. Yeah. I don't think I would have changed that. Liz, looking back, I mean, I know this was a number of years ago. Do you feel like there was any elements of your design you would have changed if uh, uh, you finally saw the show come to life? No, I don't think so. No, I, I, I just threw that out there. I don't think so either. I mean, I, I was really impressed with the, the, one of the things we do at APF, we try really hard and we, and we talk about this all the time is that we want to create a complete world, right? We're trying very hard at, in a cooperative way between all the design teams, the director, the production staff to create a, a, an entire world that feels whole and complete in its, in its detail and, and design. I think we, succeeded on wit i was very proud of wit i think i i mean i am ultimately proud of the product i think but i know i'm proud of the process apf always gives me and i'm sure other designers as well but uh the opportunity to do things that you don't necessarily have time or space or budget or support to do in other theatrical environments so we used those phillips hue light bulbs that you can buy at home depot and put in your own home and control with an app on your phone that's what we put in these practical ceiling fixtures for the wit ceiling. Those light bulbs are not engineered to be use, used in a theatrical setting. They're not intended to be able to be controlled through a lighting console. So APF giving me the space to try this thing that is definitely not supposed to happen. It's not engineered to come into life this way. Uh, I think those opportunities are always something that I'm grateful for because in the end for this show... While it took some computer programming from somebody, my partner, who's significantly smarter than I am at things like that, it ultimately worked. We were able to sort of hijack the Philips Hue system and use that through our lighting console and use those light bulbs. So we also had the opportunity to use standard looking A lamps and change the color or change the color quality, whether it was a warm white or a cool white to fit the needs of our emotional impact in the scene. I think that was a really awesome thing to be able to do. So that's a part of the process and the experimental thing that we do at APF that I'm always really proud of. And this show sticks out in my memory for that reason, especially. So one of my proudest moments for me as a designer is, or not as a designer, as a director, I'm not a designer. (laughs) I need you guys. Um, As a director is after we've had those production meetings and we've collaborated together is seeing you guys present your design uh, concepts to the cast on that first day of rehearsal. Uh, I, my, my chest like fills up and I, I just beam because I'm so proud of everything that we've accomplished together as a team. Well, and that is my favorite part of the process too. Just the very collaborative nature of the art. It, it is embraced by some better than others. And we've worked with designers who, who don't collaborate really. They, they want to just present their vision. And it, it, and you've seen, I think we've all seen shows like that, where it's clear that, that the costume designer was thinking one thing and the set designer was thinking something else. And the light designer was from Duluth, you know, 
thinking something entirely different where they don't all gel together. But the, the, those meetings, those early production meetings where we all are on, we're all working towards the same goal and contributing um, surprises and, and unique perspectives. That's, that's really one of my favorite parts of this whole theatrical process. And Eric, you're nodding. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I actually, earlier you had said, uh, we start our process like eight to 10 weeks out. And I'll tell you, one of my favorite things in the whole world is we're like two years out. Uh, we start talking and she says something like, I'm thinking we'll do this particular show sometime and we'll just spitball a couple just junky ideas right away. And then I'll just ponder it for years and then it'll be added to a season. And I get so excited because I've already worked through all of the junky ideas in my head and I'm like, okay, not those. Now we get to start with the collaborative effort that is without all the junk. Well, I know for a fact that you have actually helped cement some of those shows in a season because of your ideas. I know that, that for example, when we uh, eventually came across August Osage County, it was always just meant to be a reading because it was impossible. You could not do that show without a three-story set. It could not be done. There was no way in humans could possibly create August Osage County without a three level set. And eventually after, uh, you and Emery chatted about it for a while, it became clear that, Oh yeah, it, it could very easily. Yeah. Well, not easily, but it could, it could absolutely be done and be done very effectively. I'll tell you what, just now this happens on occasion. Uh, you just gave me some chills and that's a real thing where I'm like so excited about a thing that I've, you know, we're working towards and I get a little bit of a chill, a moment in a show or a, a special light cue that I'm waiting for. And it happens just right. And that was one of them, you know, just coming together with that particular show. Uh, yeah, I, I can't even believe that we were able to pull off August Osage in a mm -hmm. one story space. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll call you after because I have another some other shows in mind. <laughs> we, we have some ideas, Eric. So you'll get those chills again, guys. I want thank you so much for joining us and and uh, uh, talking through a bit of your process and 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 what it takes to to put these things on. Um, just the amount of thought that goes into it. it it's not a uh, clearly not just a, a matter of turning lights on and off and making sure we can see actors' faces. There's there's so much more going into it. And, and uh, thank you you guys for for joining us and discussing that thank you thanks for having me you've been listening to behind the buzz a continuing conversation from a public fit theater company this was episode three and i want to thank eric koger and liz klein designers and theater artists extraordinaire for joining us today with their thoughts about the creative process if you enjoy these conversations, please take a moment to subscribe. There are more episodes on the way, including, in two weeks' time, a chat with Margaret Edson herself, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Wit. Anne-Marie and I had the great fortune to spend about an hour with her, and we had a fantastic time talking about sixth graders and, and hot dogs, and of course, her remarkable play, and the impact it's had on the lives of so many people. That episode airs November 7th. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for upcoming episodes, drop us an email at behindthebuzz at apublicfit.org. And who knows, maybe your suggestions will influence a future episode. Behind the Buzz is a product of a public fit theater company, 
in association with Giant Leap Industries, Adam Paul, director. Giant Leap Industries.